Hello, I'm Ricky Koopman. And I'm Danny Reid. And this is Don't Have a Jewett, a podcast from the City of Mount Gambier Library. This podcast delves into the stories of the Mount Gambier Library, from authors to innovation, programming to local history. We invite you to join in and learn about what we do here in the library and our place within the community. Right before our event this evening, we have with us Victoria Perman with the launch of her latest release, A Woman's Work. And Victoria has been kind enough to have a chat with us for our podcast, Don't Overdo It. Welcome again, Victoria, to the Mount Gambier Library. I'm so pleased to be back. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. Now, before we start talking about tonight's event and your latest release, can we go back to the earlier days and, and where things all started from? I believe from one of your previous events with us, you spoke about being in media and always being writing, always writing in the earlier days. Is that right? Yeah, I started off as a journalist um, for the ABC, actually. Um, in I did my cadetship with the ABC back in the 80s, a long time ago. Um, and uh, But I, always, I wanted to be a writer back then, but there didn't seem to be a way to become a writer. I didn't know anyone who was. There were no university courses back then like there are now. So I thought, well, if I like playing with words, maybe journalists will work for me and it did and I really loved it um, and then I did a whole lot of things after in that sort of career so I became a speech writer and I worked in communications and it, all the time it was writing and using that muscle um, but I never quite put the dream away and when my when our youngest child was 12 so that's 11 years ago now I thought oh, I just really have to try to achieve that thing that had been sitting in the back of my mind for a long time and you know with three kids and a career and a busy household and all that I had put that dream away and I thought I you know I there was a, a joke that I used to um, say with my husband and we'd go into a bookshop and I'd say why aren't my books on the shelf and he'd say you haven't written one yet so I thought, true. Big tip there. <laughs> yeah, big tip. So I sat down and, and wrote a book in 2012 and it was published in 2013. So your first book, your first novel yeah, was the published. the first book I wrote, yeah, which was just a huge, huge privilege actually. Um, I went to a Romance Writers of Australia conference. I'm still a member of that organisation. Um, I went because you could sit in front of a publisher like we're sitting together now and kind of pitch your book like speed dating. So you sit down and they say, oh hello, who are you and what, what's your book about? And I forgot my name, I couldn't speak. Um, and I told them about my book and uh, they wanted to read the manuscript and that was my first book, Nobody But Him. And that came out in 2013. So it's just been... A book a year since then. Yeah, and um, as you said with the title, you know, your earlier books, they were all romance. So was that a genre that you always had been dabbling in, like wanting to write in? Or? Yeah, I thought it was. There was a time when I thought it was an easy way to get into publishing because there's so much of it being published. <laughs> easy it's not easy to write any book and I you know I think that's a common misconception that uh, people might have who don't write is that we just crank out these romances it's just hard work I mean writing any book is hard work Um, but I was doing really serious things in my day job and I wanted some light relief when I came home I didn't want to read about really serious things I wanted to be taken away and just you know, soak up the banter between a couple who are getting to know each other. And they're the kind of romance books I really like where there's a lot of fun banter and, um, you know, a bit of angst. 
um, a bit of misunderstanding, but you know there's going to be they're going to get together in the end. But it's the how they get there that's the fun bit, and that's why romance readers love um, that genre because it's kind of a it's a deal that you know that um, there's a saying that it's sometimes it's not happy ever after, but it's happy for now. And, and sometimes Too that's true. all we want. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, the genre was so popular but is still so popular. Huge. Yeah. It, it basically props up the entire publishing industry mm-hmm. because romance readers are so loyal and so voracious, as you would know, um, being a librarian, mm-hmm. they come in and they, some people read four or five books a week. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how they do it. I suppose I don't do it because I'm writing them. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's just such an appetite, and especially for Australian romances. And that's, you know, looking at the wall coming in, Mail and Nell um, and, um, oh, God, I'm going to miss someone, Mandy Magro and Rachel Johns and um, Trisha Stringer's sort of moved into women's fiction. All these people I know um, have just done so well. Nicole Hurley Moore is another huge favourite. So uh, they're just going gangbusters, and I think that's great. And I think people like them because they're set in Australia and they're recognisable, yeah, um, with recognisable characters. People can connect definitely, yeah, absolutely. So from those early days, and uh, you were writing the rural romances, which were hugely popular and successful. You then uh, started writing more of the historical sagas, and now internationally best-selling uh, author with your historical sagas. Now, am I correct? The Three Miss Allens, was that your first, as you say, sort of more of the uh, yes, historical? Yes, um, um, I just had an idea about um, Victor Harbour. It was, it was as simple as that. And I saw, a, I saw an advertisement in a newspaper... Um, I was actually, when I was writing my um, Boys of Summer series, there's, a, there's some islands off Victor Harbour and I'd forgotten what they were called and I had to look them up and I just Googled it. But it, inadvertently I went down the rabbit hole of research and I found an article which described the summer holidays of the seven Miss Leeworthies who went to Victor Harbour with their parents and, uh, and it had sort of uh, some descriptions of their social um, life during, at Victor Harbour. And I thought... Imagine being called the seven Miss Leeworthies, seven sisters, all single. Obviously, the holiday was to try to find some of them husbands as well. And so I had that in mind and I thought, I can't write seven sisters, that's just too unwieldy. No one will keep track of who they are, much less me. And so I I thought maybe I could do three sisters. And then, so I sort of, that's just how that idea came about. So that book half was set in the, the late 20s and half was set in the modern day and with, with characters who are linked but they don't quite know how. Um, so that And I just loved it. I just absolutely loved the research and recreating that time in our history and that's how I sort of got into the more historical fiction. It was a complete accident um, but I just had an idea that if I found these stories um, and I found them interesting then other people might too. And that's how the Land Girls happened and um, the Women's Pages and The Last of the Bonagilla Girls and all those other books. I've read all of your books. Thank I, you. I absolutely enjoy them and I always recommend them to family, friends and, and readers that come in because I do appreciate the research that you have in there. And I always say, you know, you are a storyteller. You're The way you magically weave fact and fiction is just beautiful. So for me, you know, you said you sort of accidentally fell into that, but... You know, as a reader, you think, oh, my gosh, this lady has been doing this for 100 years. I know. Look, it, it's, I, I think in a, if I'd come back reincarnated or maybe if I was born a bit later or something, I should have been an historian. I would have absolutely loved it. And I so admire the work they do. Um, 
because I think they bring they bring hidden and lost stories to life, and and that's what I think I do. Not in the depth that an historian does, who takes seven years to write a book, and their research is just tremendous. But I rely on them, and I, and so that's why I admire them too. So no, I, I'm just a bowerbird of facts and stories and vintage Tupperware and um, <laughs> a whole, a whole, and books, a whole lot of things. But I think it falls into that category. I just love collecting little facts. And yeah. Just like the seven Miss Lee Worthies piqued my interest and I thought, who were they and why were they going to Victor Harbour? And then it turned into Victor Harbour was a big social scene from the well-to-do families of Adelaide because it was slightly cooler than, than the city. So people would go down there with their servants and spend a few weeks over the summer. And once I read that, I thought, oh, my gosh, who are these people? Who were they that brought their servants down with them? And what did the local people feel when the people, those well-to-do people came down with their servants? And what did they do for entertainment? There was no TV or there was barely cinema. And so it just started like that and I just mm. went down the rabbit hole. So is there... Um you know, is there an, an example of uh, some research where you went to extraordinary lengths or something significant that fell into place or when you've been doing your research for your latest novels? Um, I think it, it happened after the book came out, but I think it's really profound, is that when, um, when The Nurses' War was released, I, I had planned that book and had planned a trip to London to, to be there, to walk around the... For those who haven't read it, it's about a, a hospital in England during World War I, which was the, a manor house of two wealthy Australians who went over to live there and never came back to Australia. Um, but they, they had sons serving, so they handed over their house and property... And it became a, an Australian hospital staffed by Australians. And by the end of World War One, fifty thousand troops went through and were treated there. And when I so when I heard about this story, I thought, oh my goodness, this is just a story waiting to be told. But it was after that book came out. Oh, by the way, I didn't ever get to go because oh, of COVID. Yes, yeah. Um, so that was really hard, and I was really conscious that I made it as real as I could. So I found old maps of the hospital, and I I looked at old. Um, stories about the history of the village so I got the village right and I looked at photos and I had to describe the butcher shop which had you know um, joints of meat hanging in the open window it's kind of strange it's you know it was bizarre Um, but it was afterwards as I said when people came up to me and said or wrote to me it messaged me on my social media account saying I've just found out that my grandfather was at Harefield Hospital or my great-grandfather, depending on you know, how old they were. We didn't know, and you've given me a real insight and the family an insight into how, you know, what treatment he received there. And he must have been so relieved to go there and, and be treated by Australian nurses. And so that was... I could never have predicted that that would happen after that book came out. Um, and, uh, you know, there are links to Glencoe um, in is. that There's book. There is. There's the local link. Yeah. yeah, so just a quick aside, Letitia a Billiard Leak was born at Glencoe and her family had a huge property there. And when her parents died, she went to live with an uncle in Tasmania and um, later when she married, she and her husband, who was a lawyer, discovered that she'd been ripped off her fortune. So they sued her uncle, and this is in the 1890s, and they they settled out of court because the... Publicity was so um, humiliating for the family. And they she received her inheritance, which was the equivalent in today's money of $20 million. Wow. So she was such a fantastically forthright and brave woman to do that back in the day. Um, and she and her husband hyphenated their names, which is why she's Billiard Leak 
She was Letitia Leake before. So I just was fascinated by her as well. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, so she, yes, she's a Glencoe girl. She is. I remember when you were here last year talking about it and the audience of many people in the audience that knew that as well. So, yes. again, you, that connection, isn't it, you know, and, and putting people's mind at ease and, and yeah, I our local history officer has a wonderful job with being able to assist in similar situations oh, there. Oh, yes. It's, it's it, we're bringing the past to life to me is... It, there's nothing better for me because we, we tend to think, I mean, even if we think of our parents, we tend to think they've always been the age they are today. And I'm sure my kids think that about me. But then you have to think, well, actually, they were young once. And I, you know, I talked to my mum and um, she loved Johnny O'Keefe when she was a teenager. She'd just arrived in Australia and then Johnny O'Keefe burst onto the scene and, oh my gosh, she loved Johnny O'Keefe. And so I kind of have to think that, yeah, she was young once too. My grandparents were young once too. I only remember them as being my grandparents. Mm. Um, they've been dead many, many years now. So it, it is. It, it does bring the past to life, but I think it brings people to life as yeah. well. Yeah, gives peace. Yeah. Now, we could talk about all those previous books and all the research <laughs> for a long, long time, but we are tonight here for A Woman's Work. So for those who haven't read it, because it is very, very new to the shelves, do you want to give us a little bit of a rundown of that? about a woman's work? Sure. This book is set in 1956 and it's about two women who enter the 1956 Australian Women's Weekly Cookery Contest. The prize pool for that contest was £6,000, huge amount of money. Um, so the, the first prize was 600 and then the, the smaller prizes were £5. And when I found out about this contest, I thought, what would it mean to win such a large sum of money for two women um, in 1956 and that made me think of because because I do that all the time oh if I won the cross lotto or the, the, the lot or whatever it's called now what would I do with 30 million dollars you know I'm sure we all have that little we'd start ticking off the bucket list items you know breakfast in Paris etc etc um, so I kind of gave that um, feeling to my two characters um, and so I created two very different women um, the, the book opens with Kathleen, who's a mother of five. She's 30 years old. Her children are 10, 8, 6, 4 and 2 and she's just perpetually exhausted. And it, the book opens in a Melbourne winter, um, um, so it's cold and raining. Um, uh, and she's kind of lost her zest for life, really. She's tired. She cooks the same thing every day of, of the week, week in, week out, month in, month out. Um, mashed potatoes, peas and carrots with sausages or lamb chops or this tuna mornay and fish on Fridays and lamb, roast lamb on Sundays, um, but it doesn't vary. And her husband quite likes it that way. He's very traditional. And then my other character is um, Ivy, who's a war widow, who's in Melbourne. She came down during the war and never went back to Sydney where her family are. Um, and she has a 12-year-old son. Um, and I... She doesn't have time to cook. She's a single parent with a, her boy is 12. Um, and I, I wanted to create a life for her as well that was a, a life that wasn't about blood relatives, but it was about a family you choose as well. So she's a medical receptionist and she works for a doctor and she's very friendly with him and his wife. And then with a new doctor, who a younger doctor who comes into the practice. Um, but really, both, for both of them, it's about thinking about what it means to be a mother in that period and the sacrifices that they make for their children um, and the things they are unable to do because they're mothers and because they were married well, one is married one was um, it, it's a very interesting time in our history at that period Australia was changing a lot because of the 
post-war migration was really bringing a whole lot of new cultures and food and things to our country. Um, and in 1956, the Olympics were on in Melbourne, which is why I've set the book in Melbourne. Melbourne was really keen to put on a very, very shiny face for the world because the Olympics were being televised, which is why TV arrived in September 1956, just in time for the Olympics. So it's this real turning point in kind of modern Australian history. Um, but the women in the book are firmly stuck. Um, with li- They don't have the life choices that we do today. Um, um, for instance, the, the simplest thing, we don't have to quit work when we get married. Yeah. I, I must admit, uh, being a bit younger, not born in 1956 yeah. or in the 50s, I was a bit shocked. Not that I didn't know that this sort of happened, and but what I did love about your book is how multi-layered it is. You know, it's not a book about the cooking competition. Yeah. You know, it does touch on sexism. It does touch on post-war for both men and women, you know, the, mm. the lasting effects. There's so many different stories there, but the, your opening chapter is so strong and so powerful. I felt the prickles on my Back of the ma- of my neck. <laughs> I won't say anymore. That's so but, kind. That's so kind of you. And I, I really, um, for listeners, I'll, I, I will give away what happens in the first scene and so to explain mm. what you're talking about. Um, um, Kathleen's husband comes home from work, Peter, and he's a car mechanic. And I made him a car mechanic for a couple of reasons. I wanted a job where he got grotty at work. And two, um, car ownership was really booming in that period in the 50s. People had more disposable income, the economy was booming, uh, cars were being manufactured here in Australia, so more and more people were owning cars, car mechanics were very busy. So uh, Peter comes home from work, grimy from working on cars all day, and there's a bath run every night. Um, in the country, people didn't have a bath every night, I've got to say, I've been told. So, um, But the routine in that household is that Peter, the husband, gets in the bath first. Then the boy children get in the bath. There's three of those. Then the girl children get in the bath. And the last person to have the bath is Kathleen, the mum. And she's sitting there marinating in the lukewarm water, which every child has probably weed in and the grease and grime of her husband's work. And she's, it just makes her slightly... Well, very sad, actually. Mm. And I and that story was related to me by a woman and it was true about her family. Or I would never have imagined that that mm. would happen. But I think it's such a symbol of the it, position of Kathleen in the, the world. It sets the scene, definitely, immediately. Yeah, it sets the scene for where she stands in the, in the hierarchy of her family. Um, and for her... Um, it's a story about too about mothers and about her and her mother and their relationship. And her mother sees she's struggling, mm. and um, d- d- says, "There's a Women's Weekly have a cooking contest, and I think we should enter." Um, her mum really wants to wants to help Kathleen get her love of cooking back as a way of bringing her family together and enjoying her family more. Um, so uh, there's that relationship. And for Ivy, it's about being a mother of a twelve year old boy and being the only parent. I mean, she's motherless herself, in effect. Um, and I have uh, three sons, and I kind of base that beautiful relationship with 12-year-old Raymond on my boys before before they grew up, really. I mean, I've, I've put him at 12 on the cusp of puberty and the changes that mm. ch- you know his children go through inevitably, but he's still at the stage where he wants to do things with his mum, and he'll hold her hand as they cross the street. And I get really nostalgic for that because, of course, 
when your boys and girls grow up, they don't want to hold your hand crossing the street. That's only natural. But um, Raymond sees the mag- the Women's Weekly magazine um, at home and he's very used to having baked beans and fried eggs um, for dinner. That's the extent of Ivy's cooking. But he asks her, can they cook something together to enter the contest? Because he wants to buy a TV. Um, and so he can watch Rin Tin Tin because he's always loved dogs and they could never have a dog. They live in a flat. And so Ivy decides to help him because he's lost so much not having a father. So it's really about her mother, as a mother, her love for her son and, um, and how they figure that out together and how they, they start cooking together. Yeah. So it, was, it, it, it is about mothers. It's about being a mother and having a mother um, and that beautiful relationship that, um, you know, both my women characters have um, with their children too. Now, I know, but are you willing to share with us how the story came about? Yes, well, my, a really dear friend of mine, I've known her since our children were at childcare together when they were babies, so 22 and a half years, um, has two secondhand bookstores in Adelaide, um, Goodwood Books on Goodwood Road and Blackwood Books in Blackwood. Now, I do love um, brand new bookstores, of course I do, and I love libraries. And you love libraries, yes. <laughs> Undoubtedly, I love I love anywhere there are books. But many of the books I use for research are out of print, they're really old, um, and the things I find in um, um, thrift shops and secondhand bookshops are gold to me because they've just disappeared from the modern shelves. Um, so one day I walked in um, to her shop in Blackwood and, and she just said, I said, oh, hi, how are you going? And she passed me, she stared at me like she was handing me a winning lottery ticket and passed me a booklet, which was a supplement to the Australian Women's Weekly in October, October 31st, 1956. And it was a booklet of all the winning recipes from that cookery contest. And I looked at it and when I saw enter the Women's Weekly 6,000-pound cookery contest, I just thought, there is my next book. And I looked at her and said, oh, my God. And she said, I know. And she knew that I had just found the next idea for the book. So, you know, we're often asked as authors, where do ideas come from? Sometimes you have to scrape the barrel to come up with an idea. This one was literally handed to me. Um, and I just feel so lucky that she knows what I do. She she likes my books, fortunately, and she just thought there's a story here about this cooking contest. Well, I am and so grateful right. to your friends. Yes, and, and I've dedicated the book to her. <laughs> her swear. name is Sarah yes. Tooth. Yeah, um, that's just wonderful, and I, and that's why I love live author events again. Having them here post COVID again, you know, hearing the story. Behind the story is always just as interesting as the story. There's always something there. Absolutely. And it's so great to be back in front of readers. Mm. Those COVID years were very tricky for a whole range of reasons. Yeah. Um, but it's so nice to see people back in libraries too. Now, again, I could just keep talking to you for hours and hours and hours, but we have an event to get, <laughs> get to on the library floor at <laughs> and, the moment. And we have some scones to eat. We do have some scones. <laughs> From the book, we have some uh, gherkin and cheese scones out there. <laughs> And they're delicious. Been baking them for a couple of hours. So <laughs> <laughs> let's see what the audience think. Uh, Victoria Perman, thank you so, so much. And hopefully we get to do this again this time next year. Oh, I'll be back. Thank, thank you. you. If you'd like to get your hands on Victoria's latest book, A Woman's Work, or one of her many other historical fictions or romance novels, grab your library card and make your way in person or online to the Mount Gambier Library. And while you're there... Make sure you grab a copy of our monthly What's On guide 
we can find out about our next author events. And as always, we thank you for listening to Don't Overdo It, a podcast from the City of Mount Gambier Library. Thank you.